Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. This episode is brought to you by Sydney Symphony Orchestra, sponsors of FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull with you on FBI Radio 94.5, streaming online or on the podcast. This is Out of the Box. Every Thursday from 12 to 1, I sit down with one person and their record collection and look at the stories and songs that have shaped their life. Today I'm broadcasting from the FBI Radio studio in Redfern, which means I'm coming to you from unceded land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I want to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My guest today has been making art for almost six decades. We first met him in 1977 as the lead guitarist for the Australian rock group Mental As Anything. You probably know Reg Mombasa for something else. Yes, he designed a lot of the artwork featured across the Mambo brand. And by the year 2000, his art had become so iconically Australian through Mambo that it was all over the Olympic opening ceremony. Reg still makes music in several bands, including Dog Trumpet, where he plays with his brother and longtime collaborator Peter. He's actually got a bunch of gigs coming up, which we'll talk about later in the show. And he still makes art as well. He's got an exhibition on in Redfern right now, which we'll talk about too. And of course, we'll talk about all of the music that has shaped Reg Mombasa's very big, very prolific life as an artist. Reg, it's such an honour to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining me. Oh, no worries. Thanks for having us on. When we talked about this interview the other day, you talked about the horrors of war and you talked about your art as a way of exploring maybe the more violent side of the human experience. When did that first become an interest to you? Well, probably when I was a child, really, because we sort of, we grew up in the shadow of the Second World War because my, both my parents were in the armed forces. My mother was in the Air Force in England uh, and bomber ground crews and my father was um, in the Medical Corps in the 8th Army, um, in the British Army and then and, uh, and my uncles were in the, were also soldiers, one of my uncles was a war hero so as kids we, you know, we played war, we made models of weapons, we read war comics, we, you know, so, so the, the Second World War had a big kind of effect, it was part of, you know, a big part of the culture I guess then. But even though you grew up in a post-war era, didn't you? Yeah, well, yeah, no, I was born after the war, but it yeah, just, it was it, you were sort of in the shadow of that of that war, I guess, and and then, and when I was eleven, um, the, the um, Cuban Missile Crisis happened, and and I hadn't paid much attention to the news before that, but I I could tell all the adults were really worried about it, so I became quite you know fearful that we were about to have a nuclear war. Luckily, we we didn't, but I mean that things like that, I guess, made me. Aware that you know of the outside, the outside world could be quite threatening, and um, and then you know when you become a, a you know teenage boys, you you have people trying to you know beat you up or whatever, and so you you know you start to see the um, the, the violence of the, of humans, well men really. Mm. So um, I've always kind of been a little bit obsessed with that, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about that too because your life started in New Zealand, which I think people broadly think of as quite a peaceful <laughs> place. Can you tell me what your life was like there? Well, it is a peaceful place, but, it, but it, you know, as a, 
I was kind of a little bit out of the, the you know, the mainstream culture really was just, you know, rugby and hunting and street fighting and, and stuff like that and I didn't like any of those things really so I was a little bit little bit um, marginal in that in that sense but um, but you know I had a happy happy childhood in in, um, in a suburb called Papakura in South Auckland which was a you know working class suburb with lots of um, um, migrants who had arrived after the Second World War including my, my parents and um, and Maori people um, uh, moving in from the country into into the city to, to look for work and stuff so I, I enjoyed that that part and then um, as an adolescent, I became a little bit less relaxed. How did your parents arrive in New Zealand? Mum went by, us, by herself. She went. She was going to go with one of her sisters and, and a friend, but they sort of piked out at the last minute. So she she went by herself, and I think around about 1947 or 48, and and worked as a nurse at at, at first. And so it was quite of a a brave thing for her to do to you know go by herself to to the other side of the world. Mm. Start a new life, and and my father had first gone to Canada and then to New Zealand, and and mum and dad were both working in a in a mental hospital. They were both psych nurses, and that's where they met. Um, so um, that was a, an interesting interesting place to meet, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and your dad was a carpenter when you were growing up. Yeah, and you know you've obviously gone on to become an artist and a musician. Was there a lot of creativity in your home when you were little? Oh, not a huge amount, but but Dad had had a, a scholarship to go to art school when he was sixteen in Ireland, uh, but his father died suddenly, and um, so he had to get a job. So he was apprenticed out to um, I think one of his uncles who was an undertaker and made coffins. So he started um, you know doing carpentry then. But when he went to England, he, he the only job he could get was as a psych nurse because that was a low status, unpleasant sort of job mm. at the time. And um, so he he did that, and then he then he joined the British Army and. And because he'd been a nurse, they put him into the medical corps. Reg, you and your brother Peter are long-time collaborators. You're still making music together now. Yep. Did you create things together growing up? Oh, we we got on pretty well. I mean, my brother would would be he's still annoyed the fact that I because because I was actually six years older than him, so I teased him mm. and tormented him a reasonable amount, which he didn't like very much, understandably. Mm. So, but you know, but I still. I still played happily with him, you know, as, a, as children, and um, and started showing him a few chords, and that when he, you know, when he started taking an interest in playing the guitar, when when um, he would have been twelve or thirteen, I suppose. Um, so yeah, we we didn't really collaborate artistically in in that sense, but yeah. I mean, how much art are we making when we're that age as well? And it sounds like your dad was interested in that too, even though he maybe didn't get the opportunity to make as much art as you and your brother have. No, he didn't. But he he made he did a bit of Sunday painting and he made mm. toys and you know dolls' houses and little toy garages and stuff like that for us. So he, he still managed to be reasonably creative. And mum did sort of amateur drama and stuff when she was working as a nurse in hospitals and that and so she you know she she probably could have had a career doing that kind of stuff if if her life had been different yeah yeah it's just the hand you're dealt almost um when you were 17 your whole family moved to australia and you and your brother still live there now Mm. but your art kind of points back to your early life in new zealand still and you paint those homes. Is there a reason that it holds such a special place in your heart or is it just nostalgia for, you know, the start of your life? 
Well, yes, I mean, I guess it's yet part, partially nostalgia for your childhood, but also a, a mark of respect for my father because he, he built all the houses we lived in and we, you know, we tended to shift a lot. We'd, have, we'd stay in the place for two or three years or four years maybe. And so, I, so a lot of the first paintings I did in my first show and subsequently too were, were paintings of, you know, of the houses that Dad built. So, yeah, partly a reflection on family history and partly, yeah, nostalgia for your childhood, I guess. Yeah. Can you describe what those houses felt like to be in? Do you remember them in a, in a detailed way or like the feeling of them or the smell of them? Yeah, I do. I remember them very clearly. And, I, you know, I think, you know, people's, particularly people's childhood homes have a big part mm. in, their, in their sort of, in their memory and their, their dreams. And, that you know, it's like, um, so, so I remember them very clearly and, partic- you know, particularly um, the place we lived in when I was between about 11 and 14, it was, it was in the... It was in a rural area north of Auckland, and I uh, called the Wangapara Peninsula. And it was it's very quite built up now, but then it was it was pretty quiet. It was dairy farms and 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 beaches and beach cottages and stuff like that. And mum and mum and dad bought ten acres of bush and scrub, and dad made a motel. Built, you know, it was all fibro, cheap sort of stuff. He built that we had the, the house, and, and I've I've done paintings of the house and the motel mm. cottages, and he made three cottages. He was supposed to do five, but he never finished them. <laughs> So it wasn't a very wasn't a very successful business, unfortunately. It wasn't near the beach either. It was like two miles from the nearest beach. So. Did you meet a lot of people coming through the motel? Yeah, I met a couple. You know, met a couple of um, you know friends that you know young boys of my own age that were staying with their families. I got got friendly with them, but um, but it was only really in the school holidays that was people there. The rest of the time it was it was a band, it was no one there. It was lonely. But I really enjoyed living there and just roaming around the around the bush. And we had and there was or, there was an orchard. We had an orchard as well that, from the people that had you know planted uh, previously. So um, so yeah, no, the, the the memory of those places is very very um, specific and 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 you know to the point that I've made lots of pictures of those homes. Red, you've chosen a song by the Underdogs to start things off on Out of the Box today. Why did you pick this one? Well, that was it. They were a Auckland blues band that were playing around Auckland when I was fifteen, sixteen, and um, and that song was a that was a it was like a top ten hit for them in nineteen sixty seven or sixty eight. Um, and I saw them play play live in Auckland, and I, and I had their album. So, and and we actually cover that song now. So it was just uh, you know, and it's it's actually a cover of a of a John Mayle song. Um, mm. And it's but but they had a, they had a great sound. The, the lead guitarist had some sort of homemade fuzz box, or he doctored his amp or something. But it, sounded, it had a great sound. The actual the, the sustain on the the lead guitar. So yeah, just a again a, you know a, you know a ref, referring for my, to my yeah. teenage years. Another thing to bring you back to that place. Yep. It's the underdogs on FBI Radio ninety four point five. This song is called "Sitting in the Rain" and it was chosen by artist and musician Reg Mombasa. Well, I'm so- You 
listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAV, or if you're streaming via the podcast or on the website, that song was by The Underdogs. It was called Sitting in the Rain, and it was chosen by fellow musician Reg Mombasa, who joins me on Out of the Box today. We were just talking about the start of your life in South Auckland, Reg, and in the countryside around there, but you now call Australia home. What sparked your family's move here? Oh, at the time there was a recession on in New Zealand, and and Dad couldn't get work, and he was he was actually only forty nine at the time. But he, you know, some of the people said, "Oh, you're too old," and they were obviously getting young carpenters would probably be pay them less and stuff. So Mum went to the Australian consulate, and they said, "Oh, come to Sydney. There's plenty of work there." So so we did. I think they intended to stay for a couple of years and go back to New Zealand, but we never did. We stayed here. I went to the National Art School. Um, I did the first two years, which was sort of like an introductory course at the Suburban Techs, and I sort of found that a little bit boring and, and unsatisfactory, so I left and and went back three, three or four years later when um, the Whitlam government came in and they brought in, um, you know, student student um, allowances and stuff like that. So um, so I, I'm glad I went back because that's where the uh, the mentors formed at, at art school, so, and I met some met some, you know, people that I... I'm still friendly with and a few artists and, and musicians. When you say the mentors, you just brush over the fact that you were a founding member of Mental Is Anything, an iconic Australian band. Yeah. How did you come to meet the other members at art school? Were you in the same classes? We weren't in the same classes, but I'd I'd been to an art school function at one of the at one of the, the campuses and, and Martin had sort of Martin was Martin Plaza was playing with a um, sort of a scratch band and um, um, and I approached him afterwards and said, oh, do you know, do you feel like having a jam and maybe getting a band together? And and um, so we, we started jamming in, in my bedroom and his bedroom and um, eventually um, got the band going. You were playing lead guitar in The Mentals. Had you been playing for very long before you became a part of that band? Yeah, I had. I'd played in a couple of bands before. I'd actually played bass before that. Mm. And, and I'd played guitar in one band before that, but I'd played, I'd played bass in a sort of a three, heavy sort of three-piece rock band called Jack Russell and, um, and a couple of other bands, that, that, uh, a band called um, Bulldog, and we you know, played covers. and. Stones and Beatles songs and old blues songs and stuff like that. So, so I had I had been playing a bit before that. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, yeah, it sounds like all the founding members kind of had a bit of a background in music and you yeah. know had intention when you built this band. But I think the narrative we're often given with Mental as anything, it's like these guys from art school who maybe started off pretending to be in a band to trick a publican into giving them free drinks or this band (laughs) that was accidentally famous or didn't really care too much about the music but it doesn't sound like that's the case at all Reg. Well it was uh, I think it was our our first mix of Jim Blackfoot described as the most um, ambitionless band he'd ever (laughs) come across which I thought was pretty funny but obviously we did have some ambition. But I mean we did we started out really as you know wanting to play at art school parties, and and then as it you know it seemed to be going well, and we enjoyed playing together, and people enjoyed listening to us. So we started to get more more ambitious, and we had a couple of residencies at first at the Unicorn Hotel in in Paddington, then at the um, the Civic and the City. 
and um, then we got a manager and started writing our own songs and recording. So and it, so it kind of ha- happened organically. We did, certainly didn't sit down and plan all that out when we started. You know, we had, we just. Oh, I thought we you just... planned to double the charts around the world. You can't plan that. <laughs> no, well, if some people, some <laughs> people, I guess some people do plan it, and they yeah. have this very, very specific, you know, laid out, you know, um, sort of uh, approach to becoming a famous band, I guess. Um, so it was it kind of happened a bit gradually, and but you know it, no, it's always it's always great when you start hearing your songs on the radio and and you go to gigs and people recognise your song and and request them and respond favourably. You know it is it's very gratifying. When you think about the moments you had touring with the Mentals, does anything stick out to you? Well, yeah, things like touring in in America. You know, you sort of remember that very specifically. We toured twice pretty much going right across America in buses supporting men at work in I think 82 and 83 and, and you know and that was the first time we'd really been overseas apart from New Zealand so seeing America was pretty amazing and we and, and a couple of years after that we we toured England and played in Holland and did some promotional appearances in Italy and Germany and that so and and had a had a had a big hit in in Europe with um, Live It Up, so that was that was pretty mm. interesting as well. It's so amazing to talk to you about this, and it's it's amazing that you left the Mentals as well. In a couple of minutes, we're going to get into the reason for that because you have had a hand in another pretty iconic creative Australian output as well. Um, but first, you've chosen a song by Mentals Anything to play on Out of the Box, Reg. What is it? Uh, oh, this one's called um, Troop Movements in the Ukraine, which mm. was on our second album. Um, well, I think we had actually considered it for a single, but it didn't end up being a single. But um, obviously, I'm, it's kind of uh, um, topical because of the unpleasant war in Ukraine. Um, and that, I mean, the song was written, but it's just a kind of generally anti-war, anxious about the possibility of a nuclear war kind of song when it was written in about 1980, I think, and the record came out in 81. We'll jump into it right now on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5, chosen by Reg Mombasa. The song is Troop Movements in Ukraine by Mental as Anything. From the album Espresso Bongo, it was Troop Movements in the Ukraine by Mental As Anything. This is Out of the Box. My name is Mia Hull and I'm sitting down with a founding member of that band, Reg Mombasa. And I want to talk about an experience that I actually don't think is unique to just me. I think that a lot of people who grew up in Australia in the early 2000s will remember Mambo, a surf brand that was a real big departure from the way that we understand surf brands to look now. It was almost psychedelic. It was bright. It was zany. Not that as a kid I could understand, you know, the political jokes or the larrikinism that was happening on my dad's T-shirts. But I remember the hairy legs and the animal-human hybrids and the milk coming out of udders and the tongues out. Um, You know, it was so distinct. And 
Reg's work is really tied to that. Reg made a lot of the artwork that we remember from Mambo during that time. Tell me about that. How did you arrive at, you know, being an artist at a surf brand? Well, again, it was fairly accidental and it's ironic because I'm I'm not a surfer and I have pretty much zero interest (laughs) in fashion or sport, so... That was that was a little bit strange, but um, Dare Jennings, the guy that ran Mambo, had seen um, a, a single cover I did for the Mentals, and it had a couple of chickens running down along beside a car, and he liked that they looked like they were vomiting or or, or um, <laughs> bleeding from their mouths or something. But anyway, he liked them, and so I did a, did that as a yardage pattern, and that sort of went over okay. So I just kept doing stuff. I mean, I'd, you know, I was doing the odd graphic job on the side anyway and doing some covers for other bands and posters and covers for the mentals as well. So it was kind of, um, you know, it was just another side job and it, uh, again, organically developed mm. into something a little bit more. Reg, at the top of the show, we talked about how sometimes through your art you look at the way that we fight wars with each other or almost the inherent cruelty of being a person. Is that something that you really got to explore through your work with the Mambo brand? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was an opportunity. I mean, you know, I mean, art generally and songs Mm. is an opportunity for someone who's a reasonably quiet person to sort of rant and rave in a more public way, I suppose. And and Mambo was certainly that. I mean, you know, the Mambo stuff, some of it was fairly childish or adolescent, you know, dick and bum humour and some of it was, you know, about, you know, Australian popular culture. But there was also references, you know, political references and historical and artistic references in there too. Mm. So it wasn't wasn't completely um, um, trivial. No, it almost feels radical or like a de facto art movement. And I could sit here and talk about how Mambo laughed at, like, PC culture, but I'm interested in what that was like for you. Was that a conscious decision between you and the team? Well, no, it wasn't really a con- conscious decision. I mean, one of the great things about working for Mambo is that it wasn't structured. They didn't tell you what to do or we just did what we wanted and showed them. You know, you just you just you know draw a, a whole lot of quick rough drawings and then show them to Dare and, and um, Wayne Golding, who was the copywriter at Mambo, and, mm. and, if, and if they liked it and it made them laugh or or whatever that it you would finish it off or of sometimes use them as they were or you know so it so it was very it was very free and and there was and there were no um yeah there were no guidelines or rules so it was a great place to work in that respect and it was like a kind of like a de facto art movement there was you know probably 10 or maybe 12 sort of regular contributors through that classic sort of period mm. I I, want to talk about that workflow that you were just talking about as well and how that might impact your practice or um, your creative process because I imagine that working for a brand, there's maybe a certain amount of output that's expected of you or a capacity that you have to meet. What what does that do to you as an artist, you know, creating all the time? Oh, yeah, well, it definitely helped me and it also led me to do stuff that I probably wouldn't have explored if I was just sitting in a studio, you know, um, mm. producing stuff for shows in, in an art gallery. Um, and I, uh, to some extent I use the kind of um, the surrealist free association method where you just get a whole lot of reference materials and magazines or books of different about different things and 
and then just try and you know cross-reference and you know some of the images will come up with a new weird hybrid or some sort of <laughs> circular pun or something that's you know vaguely interesting but it definitely it was and apart from the fact that you got your work out in front of a, a wider public than you would if you were just exhibiting in a in a um in a normal sort of art gallery it was uh, it was great for me as an artist before we started talking about mambo reg we were talking about mental as anything and the tours that you did with that band yep. you would eventually leave that band was Mambo the reason for that? Not entirely. Me, me and my brother both an- announced that we were leaving at the same time about well, 22 years ago now, and mm. and it was because we because we were doing Dog Trump at our, our the band that Peter and I formed in um, 1990, and we'd been doing that at the same time as the Mentors. Plus, I was doing Mambo, and Peter was also um, exhibiting, you know, more regularly in in um, galleries himself. So it just became harder to do those things because the mentals were still you know touring and recording pretty much constantly so it just became too difficult doing that so we we sort of we regretfully and slightly reluctantly left and Mm. but we did it very amicably with the other members and we we did it gradually while while we were replaced peter left first and and they replaced him and then and then um and we helped train our replacements too so it it was it was it was a it was wasn't a, a harsh or or angry um, leaving. When you look back at that moment now, are you happy with that decision? Oh yeah, no, it was definitely the right decision. I mean, you know, shortly after you you, you did feel a little bit weird not being in the band yeah. that you'd been a big part of for you know twenty odd years and mm. seeing other people playing your parts and playing your song was yeah. kind of strange. And you wrote some of those songs first. as well, didn't you? Yeah, I wrote some of those songs, so that was kind of. Strange, but you, you you got used to it. Yeah, I didn't realize that Peter was a practicing artist as well. That must have been so special for your dad to see you two both make art and both make music. Yeah, no, I think no, I think Dad was you know he he was proud of the fact that we you know we did we did that and whether he still regretted the fact that he didn't get to do it, he ne- he never expressed any any you know yeah any sort of um, problem with that. But but I I always felt slightly bad that. That I got to, you know, be an artist, and he didn't really. Mm. And you did mention Dog Trumpet, your band with Peter, which I'm going to jump into a song by them in a couple of minutes' time. Okay. Before we leave Mambo, though, I was watching an old interview that you did, Reg, and you talked about almost a disdain for capitalism, or that as something that you explored in your art. I'm wondering where that fits into being an artist at a big brand like Mambo, and. The relationship between those two beliefs. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I mean, my disdain for capitalism is more for you know unregulated and damaging capitalism. I mean, big corporations have done mm. enormous damage to the earth and and to their employees often too. And so and, you know, and in terms of you know, Mambo was not a big corporation out of all the surf labels. It was probably the smallest, in fact. Mm. So uh, and, and the because you know because of the because of this, you know, the, a lot of their their subject matter was was way more interesting than what you might get from some of the other fashion labels, you know. So I didn't have it. I mean, obviously, I'm, I mean, in a sense, I'm a businessman. I sell, I <laughs> produce things, and I sell them to people, whether yeah. it's music or art. So I've, I haven't, you know, I'm not, I'm not against that part of it. But unregulated, you know, capitalism or or big, you know, greedy. You know, um, big corporations definitely have, 
deserves some criticism. Yeah, of course. Let's jump into that song by Dog Trumpet. What's it called? Um, it's called uh, Fucking Idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the choice for this one on Out of the Box. Well, it's the first time I've sworn in a song, so um, because um, some people complain about that, but um, it, 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 to me it was necessary to to kind of express anger about the idiocy of, of, um, of nation states having enormous armies and enormous arsenals and still, I mean, we can see it going on with, you know, with the Russia bullying Ukraine, you know, in such a, such a, a bad, egregious way. Um, and it just, you know, there's so many problems in the world now with, you know, climate change and um, overpopulation and, and, and increasingly, um, you know, bad governments like authoritarian governments cropping up in, in lots of places that are supposedly democracies but are becoming not very democratic, and including, you know, the United States, you know, they almost descended into fascism under Donald Trump and it's possible that may happen again. So that, to me that's like a very, a very dangerous thing for the world for it to be going down that, down that road. It's a slippery slope to hell I think if that if that continues so the fact that all those all these problems are happening and then you've still got you know nations doing these really bad things with their ridiculously huge armies it's it just it's beyond belief really so that's why that's what that song's about did you write this one as well oh yes I did yeah by Reg Mombasa and chosen by Reg Mombasa on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. This song is called Effing Idiots and it's by Dog Trumpet. Fucking Wally Wankers. That was Dog Trumpet on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called Effing Idiots and it was chosen by Reg Mombasa, an artist and a musician. And I want to spend a little bit more time digging into both of those creative pursuits, Reg. Um, We did just play a song by Dog Trumpet and you were talking about how it's the band that you formed with your brother, Peter. When did you first make that band? Uh, 1990, I think we started Mm. putting it together and I think we released our first album, uh, two heads, one brain in um, 91. And so there was a period where that was happening at the same time as the mentors. Yep. What was it like balancing those? Well, it was a bit tricky. I mean, I mean, couple, I think a couple of times we actually supported the mentors, mm. which was fairly hard work. Cause yeah, it's a big day for you. Day. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, it was a little bit, it was a bit tricky doing them both together. We, I mean, fr- we only... We recorded two albums while we were still in the mentals and subsequent to that in the last 20 years we've recorded another five or six, I think, that the current the album that we're about to release called Shadowland would be our eighth studio album. And one of, them, one of them was a double, so it's like nine albums really. Was there ever a choice for you and Peter to be long-term collaborators in the way that you are or did it just happen that way? Well, it just happened that way. I mean, I mean Peter... He wasn't the original bass player. Steve Coburn was the first mm. um, bass player in the in the Mentals, but um, and then and and Peter replaced Steve. So 
and, and Peter was a guitar player, but you know he wasn't really a bass player. But he he, uh, he managed. He's a fantastic bass player. He's mm. really one of the best bass players around, I think. But in a in a sense, it, I mean, if it wasn't for him, Dog Trumpet wouldn't exist really because he he does all the um, all the recording and engineering. Mm. Um, and and him and his wife Sue have made or made the last few clips that we've made as well. So. Um, so, so without without his input, it, it probably wouldn't exist. I'd probably just sit in my kitchen, playing um, you know playing a couple of covers every night, rather than <laughs> being a proper band. So, um, yeah. Reg, the song that we just played was very much an anti-war song. Has Dog Trumpet always been radical in that way, or have you always used it to protest? Um, no, not really. I mean, some of the songs are. Um, yeah, sort of ranting about various aspects of human um, behaviour and, and ambition and activity, but but I mean a lot of them are just you know rom- romantic songs or songs about people people you know, like one of the um, one of the the I think it's the second song we've released off the new album was called the Ballad of Clayton Luby, and he was a friend of Peter's when he was at high school, as a like a you know a ratbag sort of surfer that. Um, and so it's about the song is about his adventures of so so we do songs about other people as well as some of them I guess are vaguely autobiographical some of them are romantic some of them are just ranting about yeah about things that happen in the world the ranting seems to be a through line reg <laughs> <laughs> yeah reg you've got an album launch coming up for dog trumpet can you tell me about it we're, we're re- releasing a new album in the year I think it comes out on the Fourth of November, and then we'll we'll be doing a um, an album launch on the twenty fifth of November at the Great Club in Merrickville. Great, um, yeah, and I'll put the details to that one up on the programs page oh, on okay. fbiradio.com. It's the Dog Trumpet album launch. Can you tell me about the album? Uh, yeah, the album's called Shadowland, um, and it's named after one of the songs. Um, it's it's a song called Shadowland. It's 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 one of my songs, and it is another ranting song because it's just about. <laughs> about digital surveillance and the fact that, you know, we're spied on all the time now by, well, by our own phones, actually, as well as by, um, you know, security cameras and computers and and, um, and just generally how, um, yeah, how sort of all that technology is changing mm. incredibly rapidly. You said that this is your ninth album, eighth maybe technically ninth, (laughs) with Dog Trumpet. And, you know, before this band was formed, you were in various bands and you've been making art for a really long time as well. Are you able to put a number on that? How many years have you been creating, Reg? Well, um, it's hard to say. I mean, as I said, you know, I drew assiduously as a Mm. a child, but I think I I sold my first painting when I was 15. Um, And and, and a guy commissioned me to... Just copy a painting. It was a it was a pre-Raphaelite painting of a of a of a woman's head. Mm. So um, so I guess um, so I guess I've been doing that for fifty six years or so. Yeah, wow. And, and I played in first band in New Zealand when I was sixteen with, yeah. with my my cousin um, Philip Jordan um, was the guitar player and I was playing bass. So so I've been yeah I've been doing both things for a fair while. Yeah, and you're still doing both things now. I want to move to what your artistic practice looks like now. It's obviously not so much about Mambo, but no. your other style, which looks quite different to the surrealism that we see 
in your Mambo artworks. Can you tell me about it for maybe someone who hasn't seen those pieces before? Well, apart from the you know the more sort of um, sort of ridiculous allegorical yeah. narratives that I do for Mambo, and I also um, um, enjoy painting um, landscapes. I mean, I actually taught myself to to paint when I was a teenager by copying um, mainly impressionist paintings because they were easier to copy out of art books. And um, so I've always liked the landscape. And touring with the bands, I I started drawing in the cars as we drove around, doing quick drawings of the passing landscape and taking reference photographs and and I still do that whenever I travel if I'm not driving I'll I'll draw as we drive and then when you stop I'll draw then as well sort of so plain air stuff in the in the bush or Mm. or in the suburbs Um, so um, yeah it's it is slightly different to the more ridiculous um, graphic stuff it's interesting I think you know the way that you paint especially the houses that you made or, you know, illustrate those. It almost reminds me of a graphic design style. The shapes are kind of filled in with, like, block colours a lot of the time and they're very clean and it's really interesting that the same person who did that is also doing those <laughs> human-chicken hybrids vomiting up right. blood, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little bit... I mean, it's kind of um, fairly childish, really, because, I, I, because often I do... I'll do these charcoal generally charcoal drawings and then you know quickly on the spot or in the car but then then I color them in at home so it's like coloring in someone else's picture in a way so that's a fairly yeah childish thing to do and you do have an exhibition on at the moment Reg which we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes time but first we're going to jump into another song by Dog Trumpet it's called The Numbers yep Tell me about this song. I don't know this one. Oh, this one. Uh, I just thought this was an interesting one to put in because it is. Um, it's got a. It's got some science facts in it. It starts off talking about because that's another. That's one of about the only interests I have apart from doing art and music is history and science. So I'm interested in you know quantum physics, which so the, the very small things because it's so mysterious down at that tiny subatomic level and also very large things like the, the, the universe and astrophysics and astronomy is interesting to me as well. So that song starts out with some science facts. It's, it, it, it's um, I think it's there are um, 10 to the power of 80 atoms in the universe. That's the first line and that's how many atoms there are in the universe apparently according to some of the science books I've read. And, but it's a romantic song, so it's it's and I, it's slightly unusual for me. So I don't do a lot of romantic songs. So, um, so you know, it's um, a mixture of science and romance, which I thought was interesting. Well, thank you for bringing one of your only romance songs to the show, and <laughs> we'll jump into it right now. It is called "The Numbers." It's by Dog Trumpet, and, and, and I can say it's all. It's also um, for my wife Martina's birthday, so um, it's a it's a birthday present. There are ten to the power of dedication to his wife Martina that was The Numbers by Dog Trumpet on FBI Radio 94.5 chosen by Dog Trumpet member Reg Mombasa who is also a visual artist and you're exhibiting right now in Redfern. The exhibition that you're doing is a collaboration between you and Glenn Smith 
and it's kind of collaboration at its core. It's not just the two of you putting your artworks in the same gallery. You've actually worked on these artworks themselves together. Can you tell me about that process? Yeah, well, that's it. well Glenn does a lot of um, um, lino cuts. I mean, he's, I mean he's, he's, he's also a musician. He plays in lots of bands, punk, punk bands mainly, and... Um, and he also does a lot of uh, artwork for um, you know for other bands, you know, um, record covers and posters and that. But he's a he's a really good graphic artist and uh, and and a great a great liner cutter. So I mean, he, he approached me with this idea that that I he gives me the linos and I draw you know one of my images on it and then he carves it in his style. So that's basically what we've done. So it's about about thirteen lino cuts, like a small edition of twenty, and then. And then we've made digital prints of the liner cuts with with colour added, so they're a larger edition of I think of a hundred each. But um, so so I don't do that many collaborations, so it was interesting. What's it like for you to see your illustrations in Glenn's lino style? Oh, it was it, it's great. I mean, he's it gives them a different sort of energy than than it would have had if I just well, I mean, I don't I'm not a liner cutter, so I don't know, <laughs> how, don't know how it would look if I'd done that, but. It, it was. Um, it's definitely. Um, it's t- it definitely turned out well, and and he he's done a great job. He's done all the work actually. Mm. It's quite. It's quite a you know time-consuming job, carving a liner to, in that to that degree of detail. Yeah, of course. Um, and it's really hard work as well. Yes, it is slightly hard work. So that exhibition is called Creatures Losing the War on Nature. Can you tell me about what the artworks are about? Um, well, some of them. I mean, we didn't actually set out for it to be that but just once you we did all the images and looked at them it sort of kind of they they were they seem to be generally about that i mean there are things like there's a an image of a of a of a koala with a um you know with a terrorist mask on and a, and a suicide belt standing in a um in a gum tree and the you know the idea behind that is if you know if if koalas were a, a race of humans who were being um oppressed by another race of humans who were taking their taking their land off them or ruining their taking their food supply from them, which is what humans are doing to you know a lot of animal species now. Unfortunately, they would probably they they would be if they could fight back. That's probably the only way they would do it by doing suicide bombing. So it's it's, it's a ridiculous and slightly unpleasant concept, but it's um, again it you know we have to deal with all these things that all the damage that we've done to to ourselves and um, and to um, and to the earth. Over out throughout our history. It's a collaboration between Reg Mumbasa and Glenn Smith happening at the Rogue Pop-Up Gallery in Redfern up until October 30. So that's this Sunday. I'll put all the details for that one up on the programs page on fbiradio.com. Do go and check it out if you have the chance. And yeah, you've got music on the way as well, Reg. You're so busy. <laughs> Still, you make me feel like I don't get enough done. <laughs> um, so we do have that show we were talking about earlier, which is the Dog Trumpet album launch happening at the Great Club in Marrickville on the 25th of November. And you're also in another band called The Peters. Yep. Can you first tell me why you're called The Peters and then about the music that you have coming up? Well, The Peters is called The Peters because of three, <laughs> three Peters in the band. I mean, I think I'll have to change my name to Peter as well. Um, even though that'll be a bit confusing having two Peter O'Doherty's, but um, <laughs> and the, and basically it's a sort of semi-unplugged band. It's it's myself, um, my brother Peter, Peter Doyle, who is probably arguably the best slide guitar player in Australia, and Peter Mitchell is a really good harmonica player, um, and also my next door neighbour, 
but one. Um, and basically, we're, it's we're just playing our favourite, you know, blues and country songs and a few pop songs. Um, and uh, I probably should mention I'm also in a band called The Pinks, which is a seven-piece blues band with my brother also, and uh, which was put together by Jonathan Schwartz, who's a, a jazz bass player, a great great player, and um, and that's enjoyable too. We, we're playing actually at the um, at the Starfish Club at the Clavelli Bolo on I think maybe the fourth and fifth of December. Great. Well, I'll put a big list of all your upcoming gigs on the programs page on fbiradio.com. So oh, great, if we thanks. do want to go and see you, that's where you can find the details. Reg from Busser, it's been such a joy getting to learn about you. And, you know, you've been making art and music for almost 60 years. It's such an incredible feat. What does the future hold for you? Uh, um, well, I guess keep... Keep making art and keep music. Doing, yeah, keep doing art and music for as long as you can, I guess. And maybe and, keep ranting as and well. Keep, yeah, keep ranting. Um, yeah. Ranting pointlessly, uh, probably. But, you know, you, you have to do it. What song would you like to end on today? Um, well, we're, we're going to end on um, on uh, Red Rooster by the Rolling Stones. I mean, they didn't write it. It's a, it was, I think it was written by um, Willie Dixon, who was, um, who was a great a great blues artist, American, um, African-American blues artist, and, I, and I'm a big fan of, um, of, of, of the blues as well. One of the first records I bought was um, Mississippi John Hurt, who was a, a, you know, a early, early, sort of late 20s, early 30s, did his recordings, and then he was, he was um, resuscitated in the 60s um, and played a few, a few uh, concerts before he died. But... Um, so and and it was the first time I'd heard um, slight noticed slide guitar on a record. My cousin played the record to me when I was thirteen or fourteen, and I really liked the sound. It's Brian Jones playing the slide, and a fantastic player too. So um, so that, and and it's a song we also cover with some of the bands I play with now. Now you play slide guitar as well, don't you? And I play slide guitar, yeah. So I'm, I guess I was inspired by that. <laughs> and the Stones are probably still my favourite rock and roll band, I guess. Yeah, incredible. Um, okay, well, we'll jump into that one now. Thank you so much for joining me, Reg. It's been so nice getting to talk to you. Oh, thanks for having us on the show. This is Little Red Roosters by the Rolling Stones on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Out of the Box. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, this song was chosen by Reg Mombasa. So if you do want to listen to this song or listen back to this episode or look back on any of the things that Reg and I have spoken about, you can head to the programs page on fbiradio.com and find all of that. I want to give a shout out to Sydney Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this episode of Out of the Box. And do stay tuned. Lunch is right around the corner. FBI. Watch out, strange camp people. Little red roosters on the prowl. If you see my little red rooster, please drive him home.